continuing in Paul's letter as he writes to his dear friend Timothy, who is a pastor in a, in a large city. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to set the course and to keep the course. And so he writes him these two letters uh, towards the end of his life. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, let's pray. We'll get right into 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Our good Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us together today with such purpose and meaning. God, we thank you for leaving us with your word and we thank you for leaving us with your spirit so that we can understand your word, so that I could preach your word and so that others could hear your word. Uh, we thank you that we have your word in the classrooms right now, uh, that children are hearing your word, uh, that they are hearing the gospel. They're hearing the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done so that we could be reconciled to you, our creator. So we have, uh, as always, great expectations for our time here. Why wouldn't we? We're sitting before you, our good God who loves us and has created us and sustains us and given us gift upon gift and grace upon grace. And you have filled us with your Holy Spirit and you have promised to give us enlightenment and, and understanding into the secret things of you. So we're looking forward to that now. And pray that your word would, would reach deeply, that it would reach to our hearts and to our minds, and that we would leave this place, this worship today, we would leave different. Not because of our own resolve, but because of your resolve to work in us and within us and among us. So we ask these things and hope for these things in the great name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm uh, going to talk a little bit here again about uh, the church and church structure and church organization, which is what 1 Timothy 3 is all about. Paul is helping Timothy to get organized right now and to not just organize in a pragmatic way, but to organize in a biblical way. And to set up a structure of leadership within his church and within churches to come, like Veritas 2,000 years later. A structure of the church that is going to honor God and please God. The structure may not always be as streamlined as we like. It may not always move as quickly as we like. It may produce problems at times, but we don't throw it out because it's God's structure. And therefore, it is his means and we... Desire to honor that. So I want to say some things first, and, and I want to say this precisely. So let's start with, again, our understanding, our, our basic, simple, really, understanding of the church. Okay, the church is the community of sinners who have, through Jesus Christ, been reconciled to God. This is the church. This is the universal church. The capital C church. In all places, in all times, everyone on planet earth is a sinner. But the church is that particular community or society of sinners who have been reconciled to God. They've been brought together. You were born needing to be reconciled to your father. And that reconciliation has taken place through Jesus Christ. So now the church, we, exist under the headship of Jesus Christ. 
He is king. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is our chief shepherd. He is, Ephesians, the head of the church. So we exist now as this community of sinners under the headship of Christ and we exist to bring glory to God. This is who we are and this is what we do. We exist to bring glory to God through belief in, obedience to, enjoyment of, proclamation of God. This is how we bring glory to God. By believing Him. By obeying Him. By enjoying Him. Or delighting in Him. Or being satisfied in Him. Or being content in Him. And proclaiming Him. As is the natural response when you really love Him. And enjoy Him. And need Him. And this is what brings glory to God. And this is, as the the mission of you, if you will, the church. This is serious business. Which is why Paul devotes these words. This community of sinners under the headship of Christ who have been reconciled to God, existing to glorify God, is serious business. Which is why when Jesus left, He left us with His Spirit and His Word. And so we as the church are under His Spirit and under His Word. You see in the New Testament, those always go together. The Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Word of God. Okay, there's the Holy Spirit and His sword is what? What does He wield? The Holy Word of God. And so as a church, we are under the Spirit of God. We are under the Word of God, which Christ has left to lead us and to guide us to glorify our Creator or to make much of God. Now, we can get more specific in some ways that we might carry that out, but we don't want to get Too much more specific than saying that this is our mission. This is our identity. We are here to make much of God. We are here to glorify God. To honor God. And so we're here every week opening up His Word, asking God, how do we honor you? How do we glorify you? As well. God has declared... By His Spirit, through His Word, that God's people are to order and organize themselves in a certain way. We don't get to decide this. We don't get to make this up. We don't get to say this is what we want our organizational chart to look like. We don't get to say that these are the kinds of leaders that we want and these are the titles that we want and this is how we want things to to work in our we don't get to decide much of that god actually gets very specific and we're seeing that in these books of first timothy that god has also declared to his church by his word through his spirit that god's people are to order and are to organize themselves in a certain way this is why we gather on the lord's day the first day of every week to worship him because god has called us to worship him in that way This is why we eat bread and we drink juice whenever we come together because we're obeying Jesus when He said to do this as long as you live in remembrance of Me and of this new covenant that I have purchased through My body and through My blood. This is why we sit under the preaching of the Word of God. 
Because this is part of how God has told us to order and organize ourselves. This is why we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Because this is how God has told us to order and organize ourselves. This is why we gather together for fellowship and to pray with one another to God. Because this is how God has said. There's a certain way that I want you to order and organize yourself as well. God has declared by His Spirit, through His Word, that certain members of His church are to lead local expressions of God's church in a specified way. God is detail-oriented when it comes to His church. So this is the church where community of sinners reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. As well, God has declared by His Spirit, through His Word, that we are to order and organize ourselves in a certain way, which is why we do the things we do. As well, God has declared through His Word, by His Holy Spirit, that then certain leaders are to, in local expressions of this universal church, which is what we hear our Veritas, that there are leaders who are to be responsible and accountable to God in ordering and organizing God's church in a certain way and leading, in fact, in a specified way. Now, a lot of people today do not like church on these terms, which is why we bring it up. The reality is, is that the church is an institution. And there are many people today who buck against that and and do not want to have anything to do with the church as an institution. But it is an institution. Here's what I mean by that. Just to summarize everything I just said. The church is an organized and established society. With a purpose, with rules, with accountability, with members, with leaders. Does that sound like an institution? That's what an institution is. An established and organized society with rules and members and accountability and leaders. The church is an organism. In other words, it is, we, are, we are one body can we are all members of that body and we are all interdependent on one another functioning as the church? The church is an organism, but the church is not an organism only. The church is also an institution. God has called the church to order and organize itself in a certain and specified way. So it is popular today, right? And you can get books at the bookstore And you can read blogs that are pushing back against all of this and encouraging even Christians today to leave their local church. To leave the structure and to leave the leadership and to unsubmit from authority. And and we don't want... We don't want budgets and we don't want buildings and we don't want facilities and we don't want formal teaching and we don't want rules and we don't want formal leadership and we don't want organization. Right? You've heard this.
I want to get rid of all of that. And then it's a sort of romantic idea, right? That the true church, that the pure church, okay, is, is everything that the, ch- it's everything that the church today is not. And so we need to flood out of organized churches, reject the church as an institution. We don't need anything formal. We don't need buildings. We don't need facilities. We don't need budgets. Let's just kind of sit together in a coffee shop and talk about atonement over some coffee, and and that will be the church. And we are the church. And you hear language like this today. But the Bible simply has much more to say than that. And usually, right, Usually, if you've been in that phase, if you have friends who are in that phase, usually people depart from churches because of a painful experience that they have had within a church. So it's sort of a throwing a baby out with the bathwater. So I've had a painful experience in a church. Therefore, I'm going to reject the church as an institution. And you're going to have a, a half a definition of the church. Which is, yes, you're a believer, reconciled to God. So you are a member of the church. But you will only be half in the church. If you don't understand and embrace that God's plan is that we would live out our Christian life in a local expression of His church. Where there is order and organization, and formal instruction, and rules, and leadership, and discipline, and accountability, and submission, and service. This is God's plan. So while I don't want to discount personal, painful experiences, and I won't deny that I myself have had personal and painful experiences. And my family and my wife and I have had personal and painful experiences that have come from being a part of churches. But the problem is not the church as an institution. The problem is sinners who are in the church, i.e. everyone who is in the church. The problem is not God's design. The problem is not God's means. The problem is sin. The problem maybe is, is, is a leader sinfully abusing his authority. The problem is a, a church that is ordered and organized and, and deciding that they're not going to follow God and not going to abide by His Word and His rules and they're going to make up their own rules. And when we get off track, then of course, it's not going to be a good place. It's not going to be a healthy place. It may not even be a true church anymore. But it's a myth. It's a myth to think that the pure church and the only church only existed in the first century And what we have today, the church in its institutional form, is some corrupt version of the church that needs to be abandoned. Friends, that's totally and completely a lie. It's a myth. The church has existed in an institutional form 
since the first century. And by the way, the first century church did not have it all together. Right? We love to sit around and say, oh, this is so Acts chapter 2. Right? I, I've said that. I mean, here we are, we're devoting ourselves to teaching and the breaking of bread and, and prayer. And we have this, right, this idealism. We think that the first century church, man, that's when it was pure. If we could just get back to the first century church, right, read the letter to Corinth. You, you think we have problems 2,000 years later? Read about what was going on in Corinth. Read about the, the man who was serving in the church and was sleeping with, having a relationship with his stepmother. Like they're sitting in church in the worship service holding hands. A, a guy and his stepmom. They're gathering around the table in Corinth, right? And they're taking communion. And there was wine and there was bread. And they're, they're taking so much communion that they're drunk. They're getting drunk around the, the Lord's table. I mean, read almost every one of Paul's letters. He's writing to churches. What is he writing? to? He's writing to correct them. There's like only one church that he doesn't really have a problem with. And everybody else is like, I can't believe what is happening in your church. He'll even tell them things like, do I need to come and see you? It's like the guy driving in the front seat saying, do I need to come back there, children? If you don't get it together, I'm going to pull over the car. And I'm going to come in the back seat. Paul does that. He writes, I'm going to come. And when I come, I'm going to come with a whip. Like, I'm going to come and beat you into submission because your church is so messed up. And we sit around and say, oh, if we could only be like the first century church. <laughs> so we've got to get that out of our mind. There were beautiful things then. There are beautiful things now. There were wicked things then. There are wicked things now. There is nothing new under the sun. But we look back and have this romantic idea and everything that they did, we want to do. Like they didn't, like people are against buildings and budgets and though we can use buildings and use budgets for the glory of God. Well, the first century church, they met in homes, but they met in homes because Christianity was illegal. They overlooked that. You don't, you wouldn't buy a building and put a sign out front. That says you're a church because you'd be persecuted. You'd be killed. That's the main reason they were meeting in homes. Not because they were trying to set a precedence that the church should never have a building. So you've got to... uh, It's just... It's popular thinking today. And so... We just want to put a bug out there. We want to see that... That God calls for... In a specified way... Order and organization in His church. And see this, the why. This guy just wants to micromanage. Is he just, is he just, he just can't let go? Is he just, is, he, is this going to be more painful? And he just likes to see us suffer. And, and you know, he knows we're, we're people and putting sinful people in leadership. I mean, how could God do that? And obviously things are going to go wrong. I mean, is this some kind, why is God doing this? But, but here's the reason. I mean, scripture makes it clear. Okay. God means to preserve purity in the church through order. And organization. This is why God says structure, order, organization. This is why Paul takes this so seriously to Timothy. Why? Because this is God's means for preserving purity in the church, purity in life and doctrine, accountability 
in life and doctrine, that you would think well and live well. That you would believe well and do well. Preserving purity in the church. So here's what happens. Okay, God has appointed these means. So where you're going to have leaders and you're going to have elders and deacons and you're going to have membership and you're going to organize yourself and you're going to have rules and you're going to lay down these rules and you're going to have discipline and there's going to be accountability and there needs to be submission to authority and you're going to have money come in. You're going to need to do good things with that money. All these rules that he gives us, right, as the institution to preserve purity. So here's what happened. When we abandon... Here's the, the big problem and the scary thing if we were to go down this road. If we abandon the church and the, the institutional aspects of the church, if we abandon the institutional aspects of the church, we abandon God's means for preserving the purity of the church. That's why it's such a big deal. Isn't this also why you see that churches who have abandoned the institutional aspects of the church, what typically happens with their doctrine? What typically happens with their theology? What typically happens when they're outside of this horrible, terrible, broken institution? It's compromise. It's compromise. You've abandoned God's means for preserving purity in the church. Incidentally, this is a bit of why we're always encouraging membership in the church. This is why we we say right often, commit to a church. And that is one of our mantras, not commit to this church. I mean, that'd be great. But commit to a church. It's not an us thing. It's not a me thing. It's not a Veritas thing. But commit to a church. Find a true church, a healthy church, and commit to it. And if it's not us, what do we say? Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Come and visit. Come and see us. Come spend time with us. But but if you're being here over and over and over again without committing here is keeping you from committing somewhere else, then you don't want to stay here. We don't want you to stay here. If it's to commit and submit here, great. If not, go. Please, go. Stop coming. Don't come again. If you know that this is not the place and you don't want to commit here and you don't want to submit here and you've made up your mind, don't come back again. Easter, Christmas, do that thing, but don't come back. Go somewhere, go somewhere else. Because, right, we really believe this. Because when you do that and you just hop and you don't commit, you are abandoning these institutional aspects. I'm saying that word over and over again to start to get you comfortable with it. Okay, you're, you're abandoning God's means of through order and organization of preserving purity in His church. Now, as a church grows, this may just be common sense for a lot of you, as the church grows, the need for order and organization actually increases. I bring that up because we're growing. This is the first Sunday we've ever had two services. Praise God. Two services. I'm glad. I was also sad because I like everybody being together. But we just had to do it. 
we're trying to get people up there, and it was, you know, hanging people, and we're just, it's not going to work. There's a story in the Bible, and someone fell and died. So we just, we know we can't put people up there. So we have to split up in two services, right? We've got to split the, the, the family up, at least when it comes to our gathering for worship. But we did that because we are growing. And as a church grows, order and organization needs to be refined. The need for, for prayerful and honest assessment from leaders and then, and then clear directives of where we're going and what might need to change within the bounds of Scripture becomes imperative. Here's just one reason why that's so important for order and organization need to continue. Remember, order and organization, this is God's means for preserving the purity of his church. And so we're ordered and organized. So there's preaching and there's consistent messages and the, and the gospel. And, 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 and we're about God here and making much of him. And so communication is important. And we need to organize that. And we need to have a leadership structure so that we all know that we're here for his glory. And if we're here for his glory, it's for our good. And, and we serve a big God, but we are very small people. Okay, we, we know all these things. If you've been a part of Veritas for a while, you know, okay, yeah, you, you've got an idea of what Veritas is about. But here's the deal. When we're 30 people, okay, in, in a living room. That's how we started. Okay? You don't need a lot of structure. You don't, you don't need a lot of order. I mean, people were just showing up in my house, in my living room, and setting up keyboards and chairs and communion, you know, a half an hour before service. There wasn't a need for a lot of formal structure. There wasn't a need for a lot of rules. I mean, we were all there, and people were only there if they got it. And we're only there if they, they really wanted to be there because nobody really wants to meet in that kind of a setting week after week after week. So when you're in that small group, it, it works. But, it, it, but as you grow now, 150 people, okay, how are we going to communicate the gospel? And how are we going to communicate sound doctrine? Or how are we going to communicate the truth of God's word? And how are we going to hold people accountable? See, you can't just, you, you need to increase the level of order and organization. Take, for example, this. You go from 30 people to 150 people. Okay, at first you start with people who are all there for the same reason, right? I mean, even before Veritas started, we went through like an eight-week Bible study just going through theology and doctrine. You remember that, and we decided at the end, okay, who's with us? Okay, you're with us, and then we were a church. But as time goes on and the church grows, you have people who come in for all different sorts of reasons, not those original reasons, right? They may be there for the pastor or the preaching or the people, or the programs, or the paintings, or whatever. People come for all different sorts of reasons. And they may not be there for the same convictions. So what happens in a church, when they grow quickly, and the volume increases of those who are there, for different reasons than the core, if you will, or those who are originally there. And let's say these people come, Right? For the same outward reasons, but they don't have the same convictions that the others have. It's not ordered, it's not organized, so those things aren't communicated. So they're, they're for very different reasons. And now that group becomes much larger, two times, three times the size of this group who gets it. Now you start to have an identity shift. Because the majority is seeing things differently. The majority maybe even is believing things differently. So you need order and organization to make sure there's communication, to make sure there's accountability. Because once the majority shifts, here's the temptation for a pastor 
And you, you've seen this, right? You, you've heard of this. And the term we use, though it's not always selling out, is selling out. You hear about the church that grows and it sells out. Or the organization that grows and it sells out. Or the company that grows and it sells out. And they no longer hold on to their original foundational convictions, right? Whether it's a business, a church, a family, whatever it is. Well, that's how that happens. The majority of those in there changes. And now what's the temptation of the pastor? If he's not a man of conviction, it's extremely tempting. Cater to who? The minority or the majority? Well, if he caters to the majority, what are the temptations there? Popularity? Money? Power? An enormous temptation. And so if churches don't spot that and see the need for order and organization, Paul, what do you say about elders? What do you say about deacons? How are we supposed to be organized? What is this supposed to look like? How are we supposed to disseminate information? How are we supposed to, how are we supposed to do church? How are we supposed to organize ourselves if we don't pay attention to that? Okay, it's very simple. Coupled with growth, well, all of a sudden we're not the same people anymore. We don't have the same convictions. And we don't have the same beliefs. And there's compromise. I'll read you a quote by David Bannerman. He says this. Every fellowship of society of men meeting for common objects and for united action must have leaders and rules of some kind. This arises from the nature of men and things. If the society be small in numbers and with little to do. Now, moms, I want you to think of your family. Because that works here, too. If the society be small in numbers and with little to do, the position of the leader or leaders may be temporary and informal and the rules unwritten and elastic. But someone to take the initiative and some rules of common understanding which amount particularly to rules, there must always be. But the necessity for further and firmer organization makes itself felt as soon as the society grows in numbers and addresses itself to any definite and sustained action. So every mom, for example, knows this, that that you have one child, there's a level of order and organization that is required. You have two children, three children, four children, five children, the need for order and organization increases. Things are just different now. Chris and I can remember when we had, we had one child. We look back and we're like, what did we do with all our time? I mean, we had one child. That was, that was back when we could be spontaneous. We're spontaneous. Like, you know what? Let's just, let's, let's just go somewhere. Let's, let's just go to the mountains. Let's just, let's just go to the beach. Let's just go out to dinner. Okay, we have five kids now. We tried to be spontaneous a couple weeks ago. All right, she calls me up. I'm at work. She says, you know what? It's hot. It's 100 degrees. It was like 106 or something that day. You know, let's go up to the mountains. Can, let's just get out of here. Can you take the afternoon off and let's just get out of here? And, and we're not because of the, like, we're not that spontaneous. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of freaking out because I'm looking at my, you know, my, my iCal and it's not in there. <laughs> and <laughs> some of you are like that, right? I'm, I'm not, it's not in here. And I can't just throw it in here. You know, you've got to like, Kristen, you've got to like submit a document to me a week ahead of time <laughs> with a plan. And, you know, how we're going to do this. We're like, you know, but it was, it was attractive to me. I was like, let's do it. Let's just, she came over. I was like, let's just be spontaneous. Let's, let's go for it. We left two and a half hours later. 
That was spontaneity. Because we had to go home and load everything. And chase children. And find children. We didn't know where half of them were for the first hour. But we're all over looking for them. Trying to find. Finally, we get them in the car. You think you have everybody. And you need order and organization. I mean, it's, it's, total, it's total chaos. When it was one child, it was like, you just got him there. You got a leash. He's always with you. No problems. Now it's always crazy. I, come, I remember come driving home one time. And I look over, and I'm looking over this field next to our house, and I look in there, and there's this huge mud pit, and the mud is moving. And I realize that the mud is moving because my two boys are totally submerged in the mud. It's like predator. All you could see was just the whites of their eyes, right? And they stand up and start walking towards me. They're just wearing their skivvies, and they're just covered in mud. All I see is the white, and they're making mud angels, which they didn't even know you could do. The other day, one of my sons was peeing in a squirt gun. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are happening. It's just total, total chaos. Yeah, I'm glad. And I caught him later. So what happens? It doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore. We need to have more order and organization. The kid, yeah, just go take a shower whenever, take a long shower. Now it's like, you're in the shower, you're in there five minutes, get out! Get it! You know, get out! I didn't even use soap. I don't care. You're wet. Get out. You're dry. Just go in there and grab them. Throw them out. Next. It's like an assembly line. We've got to crank them out just to get to church. We all get that, right? Okay, if you have a business, if you, if you oversee any people, you know that the need for order and organization increases when growth increases. Okay, the same is true in the church. And here we are, we're growing as a church. So we're seeing how particularly important and relevant it is for us. We don't just glaze over it, guys, and just say, well, I'm not going to be an elder or I'm not going to be a deacon. And so, yeah, 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 I don't really care. No, this is very, very important. Because we want to order and we want to organize ourselves biblically. And so we've looked at elders and we've seen, okay, elders are, are, are responsible, that they need to communicate the gospel and they need to communicate doctrine. They need to communicate theology. They need to communicate truth to God's church. Okay, they need to rule. They need to make decisions that are going to be good and right and biblical and healthy. Okay, and they need to lead in that. But they also need to oversee so much that is going on in the church. So, I mean, there's things going on with finances. There's things going on with setting up and tearing down. There's things going on with teaching the children. There's things going on with media. There's things going on with making people feel welcome to come through the doors. There's things that are going on that are helping to organize groups of people who are meeting in homes throughout the week. There are things that are going on in various and different ministries. There are things that are going on all over the place. So how in the world, right? This is the logical. So how in the world if an organization is growing and it's more than 20 people, how is it going to work? How is it going to sustain itself? How is it going to stay on identity and mission and continue to bring honor and glory to God and not compromise? How will elders who are called by God continue to make sure that these pieces fit together? And here's the answer in our text today. Deacons. Extremely practical form of leadership. Deacons is the answer. So we have Jesus, right, as the head of the church. We have men who are appointed to be elders and pastors in the church. And then you have appointed by the elders and leaders, you have deacons 
who come beneath the elders, serving the body, serving the elders, so that the elders can devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word because the practical aspects of the institutional church being led and worked out and overseen by other faithful people. That may have sounded like just a long introduction, but that is most of what the word has to say today in regards to deacons. Let's read through it. Chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, right, like elders, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their house, their children, and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's answer a few questions. Number one, what is a deacon? What is a deacon? Unless you grew up in like a fundamental Baptist church, you probably weren't exposed to the title of deacon. Now, there are people serving as deacons, but they're probably called coordinators or directors or something else or trustees, but the Bible calls them deacons. The Greek word is diakonos, and it simply means servant. So in the New Testament, there's only two words for servant, doulos and diakonos. And many of the times... When you see the word servant, it is the same word that is used here as deacon. There are only two passages in the New Testament where this word diakonos is used in a very specified, distinct way where it means more than just a servant. So there's like a servant, which we all are, and then there's an official servant, if you will. Okay, there is a servant, which we all are, and there is the office of servant. Okay, official servant, office of servant. This is a deacon. One passage that shows up is, is right here. And you see that the, the, it's not the same thing because the deacon is already serving. In fact, they've proved themselves by being a servant, and now they're made this specific kind of servant, a deacon. As well, when Paul writes to the Philippians... He addresses the deacons there in the very first verse of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So one way to think of it is that all deacons are servants. Not all servants are deacons. One of the places we can go, and you can turn and read if you want while I'm summarizing is Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is a good place to go where we can learn something about deacons. Remember what happened in Acts chapter 6? You have the, the leaders, you have the elders, the overseers who are trying to lead the church and they're getting caught up in practical matters. In that case, it was making sure that certain widows were being taken care of who were on this list of qualified widows. It was making sure that they were cared for. And what happened is the leaders, the elders, were spending too much time or so much time doing that that they no longer had time to rule and to care and to teach. And that is the job description that God gives to an elder. 
And so they didn't have as much time to do that. So you remember, they appointed some godly men that were full of the Holy Spirit. They appointed these men to take over the practical aspects of ministry in the church. And do you remember the reason that they gave the justification? It is do this, okay? Men lead in this so that we, the elders, may devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you have in its, its first smaller phase, the church, when it was less ordered and less organized, you have what is the principle and the pattern for what eventually becomes later when Paul writes to Timothy, okay, the appointment of and the function of deacons in the church. So in Acts chapter 6, to be clear, they're not called deacons. That word doesn't show up. This is, this is in the smaller, less organized phase, but it sets the pattern. Where later you see the same thing happening, but they're called deacons. Where the principle is the elders, okay, God's structure for preserving the purity of his church, the elders need to be freed up so that they can devote the majority of their time to prayer and to the ministry of the word, according to the word, to rule, to care, to teach God's people. And if that's going to happen, there needs to be servants, special servants, who are qualified. And they will bear much of the practical ministry load so that elders can focus on prayer and ministry of the Word. So this is why in this chapter it's elders and then it's deacons, right? You see, they are very closely linked and they are working together. While elders have their responsibility and their specific job description, deacons become a sort of pastoral assistants who are an extension of the, the heart and the hands of the elders doing okay, much of the practical ministry so that the elders can do what God has called them to do. Now, quickly, three distinctives of the official servant and just a servant. Because we're all servants, right? We're all serving. We all should be serving one another and serving Christ. But a deacon will most likely have a heavier load. That's one distinction. Typically, a deacon are going to be your servants who have a heavier load and are bearing more responsibility than other deacons. As well, a deacon, unlike every servant in the church, is accountable directly to the elders. That's different. There's a close relationship that is a unique relationship between an elder and a deacon. And as well, those who are serving in the office of deacon will serve along with elders as examples to the flock, right? Anytime you have a title, right? Anytime you hold an office, you know that immediately what happens is everybody begins to look to you, look toward you. Paul knows this, which is why he's so concerned with qualifications for a deacon, this is the kind of person a deacon must be. That's what a deacon is. Now, when it comes to what a deacon does, it really depends. 
You see, if you understand the definition, that makes sense why when it comes to defining an elder, the Bible has much to say about job description and qualification. When it comes to deacon, it's all about qualification and very little about job description because it depends, doesn't it? It depends on what the needs of the church are. It depends on what the needs of the elders are. It depends on what some of the, the gaps are. So we have, very, we have much biblical clarity when it comes to the quality of who this person will be. But when it comes to their responsibility, it's going to depend. It may include, but is not limited to, church administration, finances, hospitality, publications, media, janitorial, physical needs of the church, mission trips, etc., and, and much, much more. And to summarize the qualifications. I heard this this week from Alistair Begg. It's good, concise, and they all begin with the letter S. And I, I know you love that. They are serious. Deacons are serious, sincere, Sober, satisfied, spiritual, selected, and settled. First, they must be dignified. In other words, serious. If one is going to be a deacon, it is serious work. See, we have our way of thinking in terms of status, unfortunately. And so we might think things like, oh, well, if there's a deacon who is responsible for organizing ministry to our children. And if there is a deacon who is responsible for making sure that the bathrooms and the facility and the building is clean, right? this one over here requires more seriousness. And this one over here, cleaning the bathrooms, I mean, not as, not as big a deal. But the reality is, is that a deacon must be dignified. A deacon must take his or her work seriously. Appointed to serve the church by serving the elders so that prayer and ministry of the Word can take place. I don't have time to go through the list, but if you knew what diaconate ministry took care of in this church you would see that there is so much work that is done. People, often people will come to me, and I like this, and ask me a question about something that relates to a ministry or organization, and I say, I have no idea. Now, hopefully if it's something really important, that's not my, my answer. I'm not like, out to lunch. But oftentimes, you know, I have no idea. You need to go talk to this person. Because we have faithful servants here that God has raised up who are responsible and dignified. They take their job and their work seriously. It's not a joke. As well, they must be sincere. Paul says not double-tongued. Structure of Christ's church depends on people saying what they mean and meaning what they say. And if people do not say what they mean and mean what they say, there is tremendous and detrimental breakdown in God's church. So it is very important that people not be double-tongued. That is, say one thing and do another. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And if you have a hard time saying no, you need to learn to say no unless it's always going to be yes. 
So we have to mean what we say and say what we mean. We need to be sincere. Those of you who, like me, are naturally sarcastic need to guard against this. Those of you who are really sarcastic, you've had people come up to you and say, I just don't know when you're being sincere or not. We don't want that. Now, don't throw out sarcasm because it is great. It really is. And it's, it's really funny <laughs> and fun. And I love it. But we've got to be careful. Right? Because sarcasm can become insincerity. And no one knows whether your yes is yes or your no is no because you're not saying what you mean and you're not meaning what you say. So it must be sincere. Sober. Sober. No addictions. We looked at that when we were going through elders. Satisfied. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Not looking for, not after more, but content. Right? Elders are the ones who desire and aspire to be elders. When God wires somebody to be an elder, they desire and aspire. Deacons are not that way. Deacons, you have to drag into being a deacon. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I'm fine. No, I don't want to. No, I don't. Don't give me a title. Well, if you say so. I mean, we've got this with deacons now. We're like, no, come on. You You need to. I mean, you're doing everything. You are qualified. You need to, this is the direction that you need to go. There's not necessarily that desire and aspiration that's in an elder. But it's a good quality. It's a necessary, necessary, necessary quality that they be satisfied, that they're content. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. They're not after more. They're, they're content to just serve. But they may need to be a deacon because they're bearing a heavy load because they are an example to the flock and they need to be accountable directly to the elders for what that they're, they're doing. Spiritual, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So to be clear that this doesn't just mean people who are have certain skills and abilities. I mean, that should be clear because Paul doesn't get into that. It's all character. And they need to know the Word of God, specifically the mystery of faith. They need to know the Gospel. They need to be well-gospeled individuals. They're going to be looked to. They're going to talk. People are going to listen. And what comes out of their mouth needs to be in accordance with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So I don't just say, like we would with an elder either, oh, you're just a good manager and you're a good organizer, you're a good administrator, but you know, you've only been a Christian for a year and you don't really know the Bible and you don't totally know the gospel, but you're so good at this, we just, we got to make you a deacon. We cannot do that because they would not be qualified. As well, selected. In other words, they need to be tested first. This is somebody who has proven themselves. This goes along with any, anytime you make somebody an elder, the church should say, I already thought they were an elder. Shouldn't be a surprise, like, seriously? We're appointing so-and-so to be an elder this week. Nobody should be saying, you've got to be kidding me. When we make somebody a deacon, it's the same thing, because they should have been tested first. They're already serving like this. When we make somebody a deacon, you should say, I thought they already were a deacon. Because of the example that they're already setting. They've been serving, they've been tested, and they've proved themselves faithful. And it's well settled. When it comes to the men, a one-woman man, Managing the household well. Now, verse 11. Verse 11. Every week, right, we've got to have something controversial. And so this is it. Verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The question 
that this provokes is how should we understand the reference to wives or women here in verse 11? And the reason that, that question comes up is because depending on the translation you have, your Bible either says the wives or it says the women. If anybody has a New American Standard, your translation says the women. It's because it's the same word used for both. Eni is the Greek word, and it can be translated woman or wife. Here it's the plural form. So it can be translated women or wives. We don't know which one Paul meant when we translate it into English, so we do our best to look how else Paul uses that word, to look at the context, and to figure out, okay, what does he mean right here? Now, obviously, we know that whoever these women are, it has to do with the diaconate ministry of the church, the deacon ministry of the church, because it's right here in the middle of qualifications for a deacon. So that is a no-brainer. But throughout history, there have been four possibilities that have been promoted. Number one, these are female deacons. These are female deacons. That's the route the NASB took when they said the women. Okay, number two, they are deaconesses, which is a totally separate office than deacon. It's his own thing, and they're only women deacons. Number three, female assistants to deacons. And number four, wives of deacons. Now, first for me to say there is no room for dogmatism on this issue because it is just not as clear as maybe we would like it to be. So whether a church decides to, because this is where it comes out practically, have female deacons or not have female deacons, it should not ever be a dividing issue in the church. So some of my closest friends, right, in ministry who are pastors do not allow women to be deacons in their church. And we allow here at Veritas women to be deacons in our church. But it is not something that my friend and I divide over. So make sure that that's clear. Whatever your understanding is of this or whatever it becomes, it is nothing to divide over. But first, wives, then a case for women. Maybe this means wives. If you look at the immediate context of chapter 3, when the word is used elsewhere, like the husband of one, eni, okay, it means wife. So those who want to strictly stay within the very close context would say, well, it's obviously wife here, so it must be wife here. It means that there are separate qualifications, ladies, for you if you're married to a deacon. And that's who Paul is talking about in verse 11. Now, that's the big question is, you may have thought of it, is why does Paul give qualifications for the wife of a deacon? But up here... In verses 1 through 7, he didn't give qualifications for the wife of an elder. And the elder is a more significantly authoritative, however you want to word it. Elders are over deacons. Why wouldn't there be qualifications for a wife there? But there is for the deacons. Here's the response to that if you were arguing for these are the wives of deacons. Well, there are qualifications for the wives of deacon because it is very likely that the, the wife of a deacon will assist her husband in his ministry. Right? Diaconate ministry. And and a woman can do that without violating any of the scripture that talks about headship in the church. She can help set up and tear down. She can help with teaching children. She can help with media. She can help with sound. She can help with hospitality. She can do all of these things. If her husband is the deacon of that, she can come alongside and serve him and most likely will 
So, she needs to be qualified as well. But, Paul doesn't mention that with an elder, because the wife of an elder is never going to assist her husband in fulfilling the role of an elder. Because his role is to rule and to care and to teach the church, and that is expressly for qualified men and not women. Maybe I argued that one too well. You're like, well, that's what I believe now. Well, shoot. Here's what we think. Here's what I think. This is, this is where we're at. Women. Okay. Or this refers to the women likewise. And then he gives just in verse 11, and then he comes specifically to the men again in verse 12. He's giving specific qualifications for your women who are serving as deacons. Let me just give you three quick arguments. Number one, the biblical qualifications for eldership are specific to men, while the qualifications for deacons include women. So we would agree that it is strange, despite that reason, that there are no qualifications for the wives of an elder, but there are qualifications for the wives of a deacon. We think that that means that you're going to have women who are serving in this role, which is why it's right in the middle of the qualifications for a deacon, and that these are specific qualifications for the women who are serving in this role. And one of the things he specifically mentions is that they not be slanders because, as we've talked about before, oftentimes a way that women can be tempted and have a tendency to sin is with their mouths. Most women are more prone than most men to sin with their mouths. Please don't take that the wrong way. That doesn't mean all women sin with their mouths. That doesn't mean no men sin with their mouths. It doesn't mean that men don't have a whole mess of problems of their own. Okay, we're not saying that, but he addresses specifically some issues that women might have and cannot be an issue if they're serving as deacons in Christ's church. Number two, the only office that is clearly restricted to men is eldership. The only office where Paul goes out of his way to make it abundantly clear that women cannot serve in this role is the role of elders. Remember what he had just said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 before. Okay, a woman must learn in quiet submission. All right, do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. What is he saying there? What is the role of an elder? It is to teach and exercise authority over other men. He says, I don't allow women to be in that role. And then he goes right into the qualifications of an elder. So that is the only office that we see. And when I say we, I mean the elders here. Myself and Curtis Banchero and Matt Phelan. We see that the only office that Scripture clearly prohibits to women is the office of elder, where the office of deacon is open to women. And we believe that a woman can serve in the role of deacon, and she does not compromise male headship. She's under the authority of her elders. She's married. She's under the authority of her husband. And she is not going to be in a position where she is teaching men or she is exercising authority over men. That does not happen with our deacons here at Veritas. And then third, a less important argument, and finally, is when you look at the history of the church, okay, very clearly within the first few centuries, there were women who were serving as deacons in the early church. And remember, that was in a highly patriarchal society. And most church leaders did not have a problem with it and interpreted Scripture that way. 
And that's a secondary argument that's from history and not Scripture. First two from Scripture, that from history. So it is our position here at Veritas that women can and should serve as deacons, provided they are appointed by and serve on behalf of biblically qualified male elders. This position seems to best allow for the diverse gifting of godly women while still honoring male headship in the family and in the church. That is our position. And then finally, in conclusion, verse 13, which answers the question, what is the result of serving well as a deacon? What does Paul say? Verse 13, after all these qualifications, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. He says there are two results. Okay, if someone is this kind of a qualified servant in the church, here are two results. Number one, they gain a good standing for themselves. Gain a good standing for yourself. Okay, your your reputation among God's people. You're in good standing before God's people. You are respected and honored for your service for Christ. You are looked to as an example. You gain a good standing for yourself. And secondly, he says, they gain a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. If someone has this character coupled with extensive service, you can stand before God and stand before man with confidence. That's what he's getting to. This is, this is a result. If this is the kind of person you are. And this is your character. According to these qualifications, this is the quality of your life. And you couple that with the fact that you are serving extensively God's people. Then you should have great confidence before God's people and great confidence in Christ. Why? Because God, you've got to take the context of Scripture now. Because you could take that and go sideways and say, it could lead to arrogance and pride. Hey, you can stand confidence before people and stand confidence before Jesus and think, yeah, I'm something special. But when we take that in the context of Scripture, we understand that now the confidence of your character before God's people and your confidence before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if you are this kind of an individual, is because God has made you this kind of individual. And so, right, there is no such thing in the Bible as self-confidence. There isn't. There's such in the Bible, thing in the Bible as self-forgetfulness and Christ-confidence. My confidence is in Him, and I'm forgetting about myself. And when I forget about myself, and I'm living in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God, my eyes are on Him, my focus is on Him. You have good standing in the church and good standing before Christ. Now that, friends, is 
biblical incentive. To be this kind of individual and to serve in this way. Who doesn't want to stand confidently before his brothers and sisters in Christ? Who doesn't want to stand confidently before Christ? The one who is assured to stand confidently in that way is the one who has this sort of character and who serves God's people in this way. So I'll end with this question. How do I become or how does one become a deacon at Veritas Church? So here's the simple and and short answer and the most important answer and the only answer we'll give. Godliness and holiness. Godliness and holiness. The Puritans would combine those two and that's where they had their word piety. Godliness is in mind and in heart. I am just oriented toward God and holiness is the, is the outflow of that. I live my life now set apart and differently because of the godliness that is within me. I'm just thinking about I'm just God oriented in everything. And if you are holiness and the life that supports that comes alongside godliness and holiness. So we, we do not want to be a church and I do not want to convey to you that we are interested in your resumes. Or that we're even largely interested in your background or in your history. And most of the time we could give far less of a rip of what you can do than who you are. And we care far less about what you do and far more about who you are and what you believe. And we're much more concerned with godliness and holiness and the character of your life rather than the output of your life. So men, if you want to be an elder, I was just talking to someone a couple weeks ago about this who desires and aspires to be an elder. Men, if you desire to be an elder, which is a good thing, you desire a noble task. Men, women, if you desire to be a deacon, you think you're built to do that. You can do the practical ministry. You can carry the load. You can be an example. You can be accountable and submitted to elders. You can be an extension of their heart and hands. If these are the desires of your heart, then friends, this is what you must commit to and every Christian must commit to. Godliness and holiness. Read the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 for elders, for deacons. And seek to honor God by living in this way. Now you are enabled to do this because of and through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, forget it. And so we gather every week and we take communion, which means we remember. We remember what Christ has done. It's so much less about what we do and about what Christ has done. And we're going to take communion together and eat bread and drink juice and remember what Jesus Christ has done. That He came and died as our substitute in our place. Took our sin. Gave us His righteousness so that we could stand blameless before God and be reconciled to God. Not only reconciled to God, but now be committed to His service within the church. That's what Paul freaked out about. 
Right in chapter 2, when he has his doxology in the middle of his letter to Timothy, he says, I can't believe that I've not only been saved, but I've been appointed to do God's work. And Christian, you've been appointed to do God's work as if he was making his appeal through you to others, enabled by Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the sacrifice of your only son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him to die and for his death to be the price for our ransom. Father, that we were once held captive by our fear of death and we no longer fear death because it has no sting anymore. Because Jesus Christ has died in our place and everything that is ugly about death was taken by Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying our ugly death so that when we die, our life gets better and not worse. And Father in heaven, I pray that you would raise up among us in this church Godly men who will pastor your people. That you will put a fire in men's bones. That they will begin now to care for your people. To pray for your people. And that you would in time qualify them and equip them to teach and rule in your church so that we may be a part of your means in preserving the purity of your people as we are a testimony to the world of how good and great and glorious you are, God. We pray that you would raise up men and women in our church to serve as deacons. That you would equip men and women. That you would qualify men and women. That you would free up men and women to serve in the practical ministries of this church for your glory and for our good. And we pray that all of this, Lord, as we abide by the order and the organization and the structure that you have put in place, we pray that Veritas, as we live in accordance with your word, would be in this region a testimony of you, God. Not of us, but of you. Because our desire, Father, is that not to us, but to you, be all glory, honor, and praise. And so we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com. Bah.